welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we hear stories so good, they're criminal. Story Story did some solid time at the old Idaho Penitentiary on September 26, 2016, with Slammers in the Slam, with help from our show sponsor, Boise Escape. We took our hit Story Slammers from the 2015-16 season into custody and each told a five-minute story on the theme Caged. Then they became real jailbirds in lockup as the audience posted bail on their favorite confessions. Who would you set free? It's not only Judgment Day, it's story time. So, wow, here we are at the old Idaho Penitentiary. Uh, those of you who are native to Idaho uh, probably remember coming here in the fourth grade on your fourth grade field trip to the old Idaho Penitentiary. And I also grew up in Idaho, but I did not get to come to the old Idaho Penitentiary on my field trip day. Uh, I think it was structured like this for everybody. First you went to the Capitol building in the morning, at least that's what our school did. And then you had a lunch break at Julia Davis Park. And then in the afternoon, you came out here to see the old Idaho Penitentiary, which was really what I wanted to see. I didn't care about the Capitol building. I was really interested in coming to the old Idaho Penitentiary where people were hung. Uh, and so, but at Julia Davis Park, uh, this was, I'm giving my age away a little bit, but this was in the days where common sense was a little bit necessary. Uh, playground equipment was, by today's standards, considered deathly and dangerous. Uh, none of those... There's no plastic, you know, soft, foamy stuff underneath. Uh, it was like concrete or asphalt. We had um, teeter-totters. I don't think they even have those anymore. I don't even see them. Well, and of course, it, um, we thought it was a great idea to uh, use the teeter-totter not in the way it was intended, but to pile as many people on the teeter-totter as possible. So we had about six people on one side, and I was on the other side with about seven people, and I sat in the front, overachiever, and I thought, okay, this is gonna be awesome. And we kind of went up and down, went up and down, went up and down. And then unbeknownst to me, all six of the people behind me got off. I don't know what happened. They just decided it was time. And they got off, and the other six people on the other side stayed on, and I went flying into the air, landed on my head, uh, on a piece of gravel, I'm pretty sure. And this was my first time experiencing, you know, as you grow, as you're discovering the world and opening your eyes, it's you, that first person thing, like I see that, I see that, this is the world. Uh, this was my first time seeing reality through someone else's eyes, because I kind of stood up and I'm like, I'm okay, all right, I'm, I'm all right. And I'm looking at my friend across from me and she's like, whoa. And then after a while her eyes got super big and then she started to scream and I was looking at her thinking, I'm all right. And I'm looking at her and thinking, she doesn't think I'm all right. And then I'm like, I'm not sure I am all right. And what was happening is blood was streaming down and soaking through my shirt. And my eyes were all dilated. And um, I'm not sure this is how it would be handled today. But uh, what they did is took me home. <laughs> and my mom answered the door. I mean. That was also tells you something about time she was home, first of all. My mom answered the door, and here is her son, her fourth grader, with blood soaked through his shirt. His, my hair was caked to the side of my head. I had to go to the doctor, 
and I did not get to come to the old Idaho Penitentiary, but I'm here tonight and so are you. All right, we're gonna go in the order of the season. So you have before you a slammer from each show throughout our nine shows of the season, our flagship at El Cora and our late night series at the VAC. Um, we're gonna go right in the order that it happened. If you were at that show, you might remember them. If you weren't, you're gonna hear them for the first time. And our first storyteller is going to be from my own private Idaho. He's been on our stage many times and we're always happy when he is. Ladies and gentlemen, James McNorton. <laughs> Every time I get a mic in my face, I feel like a uh, DJ at a strip club. <laughs> Next up on the stage, from Melba. Wow, child. Well, I have an awesome cage experience, and um, I was a little um, irresponsible back in my youth, about 12 years ago. And um, I had a court appointment that I missed. And I realized through the Ada County website, because I preview that quite a bit to see all my buddies and get connected with people, and <laughs> I saw my name on the warrant list. I was like, what the hell? What? I just missed the court date. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. And, um, and I figured out through talking to a couple buddies that this was a big deal. You know, like I had to get this fixed. And so I called a couple of my homies, I mean, my people that I know, and um, I said, what am I gonna do about this situation? I mean, what's gonna happen? They said, well, let's go to a house party in Caldwell. I said, C-Town? Yeah, all right, let's do that. So my buddies come by and I have this buddy that has like this pickup truck I mean, this thing is like pimped out. I mean, it's got tires up here. It's got all the chrome. I mean, it's got the diesel thing that whistles and everything. I mean, this thing was just unbelievable truck. I mean, you guys know Idaho. I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? These trucks, you've seen them. You can't even park in like Albertson because they park. Okay, that's a different topic. But <laughs> my buddy picked me up and we head over to C-Town. And we go to find this house party. Of course, we left about 1 a.m. And we're cruising through the neighborhood there in C-Town and uh, we can't find the house. So my buddy pulls over and we're looking through, calling the people that we know that's at the party and um, we're sitting in this neighborhood, you know, the truck was running and he just happened to have like this sound system in this thing that will give you an irregular heartbeat. I mean, this, I mean, it was boom, 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 boom. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you guys feel me on that one. And so we're sitting there, we're waiting uh, try to get directions to the house party, we gotta be closed. And then um, lights come on, you know, the neighbors get a little riled up, and one of the neighbors called the Caldwell police and said, hey, this truck's out here, got a loud noise, we, you know, can you guys do something about it? So the police pull up, uh, hey, what are you guys doing? Well, we're looking for this house party and blah, 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 we're, you know, just, we're not doing anything really. And we're like four deep in this car, in this truck, and, um, he said, okay, you guys need to, you know, find somewhere else to do that. Just get out of this neighborhood, turn the music down. And I, okay, officer, no problem. We'll do all that. And um, he goes, since I have you guys all here parked, let me check everybody's ID. And I'm like, okay. So he gives everybody ID. And 
I got a warrant out of Ada County. So they take me to the vehicle, and then my buddies, the last thing I heard them say is, don't worry, but we come and get you. We'll bail you out, no problem. Don't even worry about it, we'll see you. So they put my black behind in the, in the officer in the police car and took me to the Caldwell Jail. Not the Ada County, Caldwell Jail. And they booked me in, I'm saying, this is a mistake, man, I can get this taken care of, you know, don't, I mean, this is not a real serious deal, I just made a mistake, I missed a date, and they're like, here, put on this orange suit and get into the holding tank. And, and you know this orange suit did not fit me, right? I mean, so I got, I got this thing on, it doesn't fit, and I don't have any shoes on. I said, hey, I need, I need some, we don't have any shoes to fit you. We got 10, and that's it. And I got 15, and I think it's not gonna work. And um, so they say, escort me to the, to the general population place, you know, and, um, and so I walk into this place barefooted, and they open up these, I go inside, and they, I mean, it was like five deep of bunk beds, like five deep, and it was like three sections. It was like the brothers, I mean, the African-Americans, <laughs> there were whites, and it, and it was um, Mexicans and whites and blacks. And so I walk in this thing, I say, okay, this is what I'm gonna do here. And so I guess the black boss came up to me and said, hey man, brother man, what's going on? What you doing? Hey, you got my shoes on. I go, I know man, I tried to get some. I, I asked the guard and he goes, hold on. And so he walks over to the guard thing and they do something. The guard lets him out and he comes back with me some shoes. I go, man, I don't, I don't know what you think is involved with these shoes you're breaking me, but I like, no, 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 we're good, we're good. I said, okay, all right, let's, that, that'll work. And um, you know, this, this place, like at, at, in the evening time, like it got night, it sounded like, uh, um, like a fourth grade school. And <laughs> like fourth grade school, noisy, chattery, and, and then, I got over to Ada County and went back to Ada County Jail. Now, Ada County, now that's a sweet jail. That's the place you want to go if you get busted. That is the place to go. And while I was in the Ada County Jail, the guy had some moments where... And we're out of time! <laughs> Great, so we're moving on to our second storyteller who is from out of towners, and ironically, she is from out of town. Although I just felt like Alanis Morissette there for a second. Is that ironic that she is actually from out of town and she's speaking for out of towners? I don't know. Anyway, it's Lizzie Duffy. Hello. Um, so this story is about when I went to New York City and I was 23 years old. Um, and this was the first time I had been since I was 17 with my parents. So I was really excited for the authentic, uh, local, dirty New Yorker kind of experience. And I stayed with a friend uh, who I knew from high school, and our day was anything but. It was just dragging to get to do things. She took me shopping. I was like, well, I was living in D.C. at the time. I was like, we have all these shops in D.C. I really wanted to have an authentic experience. And so then we ended up at this wine bar later. And uh, New Yorkers like to drink. So we had one bottle, and then we had two bottles. And then she says, we should probably get going, because my phone had died. 
and I wasn't doing so well, and we're trying to get out the door, and the bartender says, where are you going? And she says, where the wine's free, and he pulls out two glasses, and he starts pouring the wine again. <laughs> so by the time we left, I was not doing great, <laughs> but we made it to the subway. We're on the subway, heading back. She lived in Queens, and so it was going to be about a 30-minute ride. And finally, the night felt like, yeah, like this is awesome. We're having a great time in New York. <laughs> um, and there's a lull in the conversation, and she just stands up, and she says to me, I'm going to meet you at Roosevelt Park. And I was like, all right. And then she just stood up, and she walked off the subway. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, <laughs> that was not expected. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the subway, and I'm sure my face is like, don't panic. So I'm like, <laughs> and then I'm like, you have to look like you know what you're doing. And so I probably looked very, mm. <laughs> and I was like, just act like you know what you're doing. So I go over and I'm pretty spatially aware. Like I like to pride myself on like, I understand my surroundings. I kind of know north from south. I was like, I'm going to get myself there. And so she told me what neighborhood she lived in. So I go to the subway map and I look and I find it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to that stop and it's going to be fine. So we're going, we're going on the subway, and I knew I had to transfer trains, because I'm pretty spatially aware. So I get off the train, and I'm standing on the platform, and there were two men who were sitting on a step just to my left, and they were speaking in Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish, and so I was like, you know, it's 2.30 in the morning, I could find out if they're talking about me, find out if they're talking about something else, or I could just get on this train right here. So I went with the train, <laughs> got on the train, got to the stop. And I'm feeling pretty awesome. I was like, I did this all by myself with a dead phone in a city I haven't been to since I was 17. So I go out of the turnstile, I walk up the steps, two shopping bags in my hand, and I am on the side of a highway. And I think, well, this was not, <laughs> this was not the part of the plan. So I go back down. I was like, there's another entrance. It'll be fine. And I walk up. And I'm on the side of a highway still. I don't know what I thought was going to happen at the other entrance. So I go back down, and I'm like, You're, you live in DC. You got this. You're going to find a subway operator. It's going to be fine. But the first two people I see are two police officers. And I'm sure they were like, why is this young white woman with two shopping bags walking through New York City really, really late in, well, at that point, probably like 3 in the morning alone? <laughs> so they say to me, are you OK? And I immediately start crying. And I was like, I am lost. My phone is dead. I'm 23. I'm from DC. <laughs> and they were like, oh, OK, OK. So they bring me in uh, to, they happen to have a police station there. And so they brought me in. They gave me water. One guy is like, my wife made me chicken salad. Do you want some? <laughs> I was like, no, that's OK. Um, but they slowly, they calmed me down. They had a phone charger, so they charged my phone for me. Um, one great piece of advice that I got was a police officer said you should always drop a pin where you're staying so you know how to get home. So that's free for all of you. <laughs> I had to go to the police station to find out. Um, but finally my phone turns back on and so I call my friend. She doesn't answer. Um, and then we keep talking. A few minutes later she calls back and all they say is like, you can't, or she cannot leave here. <laughs> you have to come get her. And they told her where to go. And so um, I don't know, probably 15, 20 minutes later, she shows up. And again, she calls, and they're like, no, no, you have to come down here and get here. So she walks in the door, and the only female officer on duty says, no guy is worth it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, probably not. 
Um, and so we uh, head upstairs. Also, something else I learned, I was one stop away. I told them everything that I had seen before I gone into the subway. I didn't know the name of the subway stop. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's the next one over, but you're not leaving. So anyway, but we go up. There's a taxi. Her stepmom happened to be staying with her, so she was sitting in the car, and it was deadly silent. And all I could think was, one stop. Thank you. <laughs> Our next storyteller is from Reality Bites, and it's Mike Bryant. That should be, that's good. So, there I was. I'm looking out at a scene similar to this. The lobby was full of people, shoulder to shoulder, there was, except there was distress and worry and fear and sadness on the faces of everyone crammed in that little lobby. And for a split second, I felt so trapped and so uh, incapable that I wanted to turn around and run away at, at that moment. But I was at my post, I could not leave, and uh, my coworker, she had just left. Um, she was supposed to work the whole shift with me, and she split because of the situation. Um, the, uh, that second lasted, uh, it, was, it was very brief because I immediately shifted gears in my mind and just started triaging the situation and uh, asked a couple questions to the crowd to get a feel for who needed my help and my assistance more than anybody else and who I could take care of their problem first. And that, uh, so one at a time, I started bringing them in, getting their needs taken care of, and sending them on their way, and then moving on to the next one. And uh, um, it was a, a pretty sobering day 15 years ago in the month of September. Um, and I'll back up a little bit to the start of that day. Uh, 6.45 a.m. is beautiful blue skies, perfect weather, much like it is today. And I'm driving to work. Uh, I had to be there at 7 a.m. I was going to be early. This was a first for me, so it was already a good day. And uh, I'm driving to work where I, where I was employed at the old uh, Boise Holiday Inn at the airport. And uh, for those of you from town, you, you know that institution. Uh, it's much like the hotel right behind me here. <laughs> and uh, it didn't take long um, that morning to realize what was happening. I could see through the reflection at the front desk of the hotel the, t the TV in the lobby. And in the TV screen, I could see the smoke coming from World Trade Center. And uh, um, I called my wife first thing, because it was a little slow at that time of the day, and, you know, told her to turn on the TV and get some more information. Uh, but by 10.20 a.m., the lobby was full, and all of these people I had just sent away that earlier that morning. They closed the airport, and they all came back, and with different needs and different destinations for that day. And uh, as I said, I worked through that line, and I helped each person one at a time as best I could. I got to the last guy, and he said, I don't need a room. I need to get home. And home for him was Texas. And um, 
I don't remember his name, but I remember his face, and I remember the, like, my commitment to helping him as soon as he, you know, told me his situation, and, and uh, I called my friend at Thrifty Car Rental, nothing, they had no cars. This was only, this was only an hour into this ordeal, and uh, um, I called Enterprise Rent-A-Car at the opposite side of town, and they had one car that had just been returned, and I said, this guy will be there in 15 minutes. Here's his credit card number. Gave it to him over the phone. Um, I didn't, I sent him on his way, and I sat there just kind of trying to connect with the day and connect with what had just happened, and there was no connection happening. And I, I was asking myself, am I really this insensitive you know, I didn't know anybody who worked there in New York City. I didn't know anybody traveling or would have been on any of those airplanes. I, I felt like, what, what's wrong with me? A am I that cold? And it wasn't until two weeks later that, that gentleman sent a thank you card to the hotel saying that he had arrived safely at his destination two and a half days later in Texas. And um, it was that moment that I finally connected to that day and it and it uh, took me out of that that feeling of being trapped with no emotion and it and it allowed me to make that whole day real and that whole situation I felt like I was finally a part of it and I uh, I've, I've thought about this a lot lately I haven't shared the story very often but I've thought about the way I felt then and how I am now and I'm, I'm at a stage in my life when I'm realizing how insensitive I am, and I'm trying to get a little bit better at that. And uh, so I, I'm uh, grateful to have that experience. Thank you. Our next storyteller was a featured as well. Uh, but before he became a featured, he was the slammer and clueless, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremiah Smith. It's amazing what you learn about yourself when you're trapped and about to die. But let me start at the beginning. Uh, I joined the Army 26 years ago, and I remember talking to a substitute teacher in high school, a Vietnam veteran who stepped on a landmine, and I said, I think it's going to be fun. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know if fun's the right word. And he was right. Uh, three days after high school graduation, I left for boot camp and uh, received letters from my buddies back home who were skinny dipping with the girls from school while I was low crawling through the mud in Georgia, uh, questioning my decisions. But you know, I, I learned a couple things that summer. I, I learned to suck it up and drive on, and I learned to drive on with a hard on. And uh, <laughs> those two things have carried me far in life. Uh, from there, uh, Air, airborne training to learn how to jump out of planes. I learned how to set up landing zones so I could bring in helicopters and uh, offload uh, troops and whatnot. And next thing in, you know, I'm in uh, Saudi, uh, poised to go into Iraq in the first Gulf War. Um, and, and it was a whirlwind of, of fast experiences. I was constantly learning new things about myself and I was starting to develop a worldview um, based on these experiences, and that continues to this day. 
Um, but back from uh, Iraq uh, and then jungle operations training in Panama, things settled down for us and we started to get into a routine of small unit training exercises. And when you're in the infantry, that's what you do. You, you get your gun, you get some blanks, you go out and you, you move as a team or a squad or a platoon and you practice communicating, you practice moving, you practice shooting, even if a lot of the times it's blanks, uh, it's, it's what we do. So one training exercise, uh, my platoon is tasked with a mission to assault a, another unit that was operating in a field. So um, because this had become a, a love-hate relationship where I loved hating my job as an infantryman, there was a part of me that hated the fact that I also loved it. And so I camoed up and I broke off a bunch of branches to stick in my uniform and in my helmet to break up my silhouette. And I got my um, squad automatic weapon and got in formation with the rest of the guys and we moved to the edge of the wood line where the enemy was patrolling uh, on a dirt road from a Humvee with a machine gunner on top. And, you know, being as stealthy as we are, we all got online on the woods and uh, the, the signal was given to initiate the attack. And as this Humvee patrolled up and down uh, the dirt road uh, between the Humvee and the woods where we were hidden was tall grass and shrubs. Uh, and being the high speed guy I was, I rushed forward and got down and when they weren't looking, I'd pop up with my, my, my machine gun and brat, brat, blast away at them, um, which is in complete contrast with my worldview right now, but it's what I did back then, and, and I was good at it. I'd get back down, and I'd low crawl a little bit further, a little bit closer, hop up, spray them with a few more rounds, blanks, but you know, you get the effect. Get back down, and I was just about to my objective while the rest of the platoon was moving online and I was just gonna lay down on this road and just open up with my machine gun and let them have it. Well, that Humvee turned 90 degrees and hit me and pinned me underneath it and immediately started to run me over. And I yelled as loud as I could for them to stop and that they were running me over and they did stop and I thought, great, he heard me. And then that differential that was just inches from my face started to wind up again as he continued to accelerate. And I tried to grab something to maybe have him pull me along and we'd sort it out later, but no, I imagined my body being folded in half and my intestines being erupted through the my side of my, my stomach. Um, but I wasn't worried necessarily about dying. What really killed me that day was this overwhelming sense of, of pity where I looked at myself and, and it was like, huh, that's too bad. I'm not going to get to grow up and get married and have a good relationship and, huh, that's too bad. I'm not going to get to be a father. Uh, but that Humvee finished running me over. And I jumped up on top of it and I hit the door gunner and he looked like he saw a ghost because he probably did. Uh, and next thing I know, I'm on a field ambulance on the way to the emergency room uh, to get a, a twisted shoulder and a broken toe fixed up. 
But you know, being trapped underneath that Humvee all those years ago, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world for what it taught me about myself. Thanks. Next storyteller was the slam was a slammer from Dazed and Confused, and um, I don't know if titles call people to them. If like that's why you become a slammer, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only my best friend Sarah Jo John. I'm Sarah, um, and I am going to tell a story that I prepared, which I prepared believing that my mother wasn't going to be here. <laughs> but this morning, she's like, hey, I'm coming, so there she is. <laughs> um, so, surprise. <laughs> uh, a couple years back, I was a lobbyist for a nonprofit organization and a national organization, and uh, I loved this organization. Um, I loved the job. Uh, I felt like I was gonna make a difference. And uh, because I was a lobbyist for this national group, I got to travel to Washington, D.C. Sometimes I was partnered with, um, with a national board member, and so I got to learn from that person and work side by side with them. And this particular story that I'm going to tell you involves um, a CEO from New York City who was um, who I was partnered with. So we had a great experience in Washington, D.C., and because this experience was really great um, and productive, uh, he asked if I could travel with him some, and I was thrilled about it. And so our first trip was to uh, Las Vegas, our first and only trip, but um, <laughs> that's another story. But the... Um, I flew to Las Vegas um, on, on his dime. The agreement was that he would pay for everything um, because it would be abnormal for me to be traveling around to other states doing this work. But I went to uh, Las Vegas and met him there, and I knew immediately that this was not going to be the business uh, adventure that I thought it was. Um, he embraced me like we were long-lost lovers when we met at the airport. and. Immediately, uh, he took me to like a helipad where we flew around to see like the, the dam and do all these really exciting things. So every day is full of like dinners and uh, shows and fancy things and roller coasters and helicopter rides and, um, and a couple of meetings in the middle there. Um, so I... Uh, we're having, we're having an interesting experience, and I'm not sure exactly what my role is here, but um, one day we go to a show, and uh, Penn & Teller is a great show to take a nap through, and that's what I did. So then when Penn & Teller ended, I was like ready to, ready to do something, and so we went to a club, and uh, immediately when we walk up to the door guy, I'm like, well, I've never paid to get into a club before. And he's like, go right ahead. And a CEO has to pay when we get up there. He shows some really true colors. He, um, there's, the room is full of not your typical Las Vegas um, club goers. It's a bunch of people wearing uh, lanyards and business clothes. And um, 
they remind me very much of uh, one of my best friends, um, Jimmy. And they're feeling like a really, if you know Jimmy, Jimmy, you could like stand up and spin around. It's his birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday, Jimmy. <laughs> um, but I have an idea in my head about what these people do for a living. So I approach some of them and I'm like, what do you, what do you guys do? What's the lanyards at the, at the club? And they are um, computer gaming people. And I learned that lanyard people are really fun um, to hang out with, and they were really nice, but CEO doesn't like lanyard people, or he doesn't like me talking to them. So he came and he grabbed me, and he said, I guess you'll talk to anything with a dick. Do it again. I guess, I guess you'll talk to anything with a dick. I want a bigger re like, reaction from the crowd. Oh, can you believe you would talk to me that way? So I left, and I found more lanyard people at another club, and I talked them into um, an exciting evening that they had never done before of breaking into this, uh, the pool and skinny dipping. And then I had to walk through the whole hotel sopping wet. I get to my hotel room and my key doesn't work. And so um, CEO has the room in his name and he's changed the lock to my key or the key to my door. And so I can't get into my room. And people uh, in Las Vegas have heard every story, so they're not very empathetic of my silly situation. And I'm sopping wet, so it's pretty obvious that I have broken into the pool and done, you know, whatever. But that, that's, that's another story for another day, too. But so then um, eventually I get into my room, and CEO's inside, and he's, um, he's angry at me, but he leaves, and I get to... I get to sleep. And then I, the next day I wake up and I do, we don't have any meetings, so I do what anybody would do. And I go and spend the entire day at the spa on my hotel room's credit card. <laughs> and that seemed to make like a whole bunch of sense for me because I was taking a little bit of like my power back because I felt like this person who had all this money was, um, was uh, trying to get control me in this situation. But, um, I booked a flight home early and I came home and it felt really powerful to then like leave that job and, and um, escape, escape Las Vegas, leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> Thank you. All right, from Office Space, Shelly Gartman. So I was driving down a dark road headed out of Boise to Reno with a man that I had met three weeks earlier. Now some of you might be thinking, that's kind of scary. Lanyard people. I heard you guys are fun. Um, but in my mind, I was thinking, am I out of my mind? My mother would kill me. So let me back up. So I met Steve in passing. I hadn't really paid attention, but he, he kind of honed in on me and decided he wanted to meet me. So he found my email and looked me up and came to a personal development class that I was teaching. But little did Steve know, he was just trying to meet me, but I teach a pretty intense personal <laughs> development class. And uh, he came late, just kind of came right in, and it's experiential, so it's hands-on. And we were getting ready to do a process called Survivor. In this process, it's a game, but basically everybody votes each other one by one off this island, and they have to tell each other why they're voting. So it's kind of rough, because it comes across pretty judgy and mean, right? Steve was the first one voted off the island. Um, and the only reason why is because he was a car sales guy. 
at the time. Like, that was it. So I was kind of feeling bad for Steve, but he did come in late and not know what was going on, so that was kind of on him. Well, later in the evening, we actually did something more intense. So I asked the students to think about, what if this was your last night on planet Earth? Like, are all of your relationships well? Have you said everything that you need to say? And that kind of thing. Well, a little bit into the process, he leaves the room, which is not uncommon, but like he didn't come back. And so I start freaking out. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, and I don't know how to call him. Like, is he okay? And you know, 10 minutes goes by, nothing. And I've never lost one before, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody's gonna be suing me, and he's hurt, and I'm gonna go, you know, to jail for manslaughter. I like, you know, doing this really catastrophic thinking thing um, because I'm a life coach and I'm so healthy. Um, so. Finally, like 15 minutes later, he comes back in the room and he's like puffy and you know, his eyes are red and I could tell he's been bawling like a little baby, but I'm excited because I'm like, he's back, he's back, he's okay. So afterwards, you know, we talked and I was just like, hey, are you okay, what's going on? And he's like, I have a three and a half year old boy. And what came up for me was that I went through this really hard divorce, really ugly, and so like, if something happened to me, I just wondered if he would be okay. And I was like, oh. So we talked for a long time and um, you know, made sure he was okay. And then he was like, I'm starving. Do you want to go get some dinner? I don't normally do that with students, but he was devastatingly handsome. <laughs> so, so we went to that swanky place in Garden City. You might have heard of it. Um, Sherry's? Oh, man, it's awesome. So we talked, and we were just, like, inseparable after that. I, like, went over to his house and cooked him dinner, and he was, like, he says later that he loved my salmon so much, that's when he fell in love with me because, like, food is his god. And um, later we were sitting on the couch watching Moulin Rouge, and I will never forget this because when Ewan McGregor, like, sings to Nicole Kidman, Steve, who's kind of introverted, he just bursts out into song and he's like, my gift is my song and this one's for you. And I was like, what? I mean, he was amazing, like pitch perfect. And I was like, oh, I'm in love. I'm so in love. He gives me an eight hour sales pitch three weeks into this whirlwind courtship, an eight hour sales pitch that would have made salesmen around the world envious. And I was like, no, I'm not eloping with you. <laughs> That's the craziest thing. I'm 33. I've been waiting for a long time to make sure I do this right and don't screw it up. No, come on. But he says this to me after eight hours. He says, I will do anything for this relationship. I'm like, oh, pretty soon we're in the car, headed to Reno get married. And I haven't told anyone. I haven't told my homie. I mean, my people. I haven't told my people. <laughs> Nobody knows, right? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, but half of me's like, I found the love of my life. And half of me's like, are you out of your mind? You could be a serial killer. You, know, you don't know this guy after three weeks. And in fact, I learned that I really didn't. There was a lot I didn't know. And if you want to know the rest of the story, please, for the love of all, it's holy, bail me out of jail because these cells are really creepy. And I'll tell you the rest. Thank you. <laughs> So, our first storyteller from, it was Rock, Paper, Scissors, and we're on Rock with Jake Tucker. You're gonna be all alone. Your sister and I are leaving, and you're gonna be all by yourself. That's what my mom said to me, screamed at me through a door. Um, as she held it shut and I was crying on the floor. And that's a, that's a hard thing to hear when you're a five-year-old. 
especially a five-year-old with uh, abandonment issues. I, a, a year before that, when I was four and a half, I was, I was left at a park on accident, and then a week or two later, I was left at the Boise Town Square uh, on accident. So both of those were accidents. <laughs> but, but it created this need in me to be really close to my mom. I was really afraid of being away from her, I, and I hated being alone in my room. And this particular day when I was five, I had done something to make her mad, and I don't even remember what. And often with my mom, that's how it was. You, you don't know why you're in trouble, but you know you're in trouble. And that day, she, I just remember she grabbed my arm and drug me down the hallway and threw me in to my room. And she knew I hated to be in there alone. And uh, I got up off the floor, and she said that to me. She said, you're going to be alone. Your sister and I are leaving, and you're going to be all alone. And I, I ran to the doorknob, and I didn't have locks, and I, I I sh tried to open it, and I couldn't open it, and she was holding it shut as she was saying those things. She was holding it shut, and I couldn't get it open, and I started to panic, and I started to cry and kick the door and scream, and I couldn't get it open, and all I could think to do was to break the window in my room, and I, and, um, I, I didn't even think as a five-year-old who was panicking to try and open the door, I mean trying to op open the window. So I turned around and saw, first thing I saw was my red, uh, metal big fire engine trucks that I like to play with and I started just chucking them at the window as hard as I could but I was five I couldn't chuck very hard and and I it just they just kept bouncing off and every time it would bounce off I just panic would panic more and I felt more caged and more trapped that that room got really small and I ran back to the door finally after trying for you know five or six times and and the door was nobody was there so I and it, so it opened and I ran out into the hall and just crying and screaming for my mom, and I couldn't find her. I ran everywhere. I ran into the bathroom, into the into her her bedroom, and all over the house. And she was gone. I couldn't find her. And finally, I got to the other side of the house where the garage is, and I opened the door to the garage, and she was sitting there, in the car, almost just waiting for me to find her. And I and I, as I stepped into the garage, she she kind of looked up at me, and it was this glare, and I, and and I just remember feeling really like, um, you know. A mixture of panic, but a mixture of relief at the same time. Like I'm in trouble, but I found my mom. So I climbed into the car, waiting for you know to get slapped or to get yelled at or something, and but nothing came. And we just and the she opened the garage, the big garage door behind us, and we left, went to the store, and came back, and pretended like that never happened. And we never talked about it. And she didn't want to talk about it. She would either say it didn't. She would either say it never happened. I tried several times throughout my life to bring it up, and she said that didn't happen or she would change the details. Um, and, and that was really hard for me not to be able to talk about that really powerful experience. And, but two, two months ago, during a particularly difficult conversation with my mom, I brought that up again. And uh, she still didn't want to talk about the details, but she was willing to tell me what happened when, she got, when we got back from the store that day. And what I never knew is that that was the day that uh, she broke down completely when she got back from the store. She decided that she wasn't fit to be a mother and she was gonna leave, she was gonna disappear. She, she felt like she had ruined her kids. So she was gonna leave me, my brother, and my sister with my dad. And uh, she had it planned and she was gonna disappear. And I guess she said that a friend showed up that day and convinced her not to leave. Um, and what's, what's, what's powerful for me about having that story with my mom or hearing that story from my mom is that it kind of fills in the missing pieces and the colors that, that I only have one one side of that story, and um, I've in a lot of ways I've lived my life in that room. I've I've been 
I you know, begged people not to big people not to leave me and then panicked when they do. Uh, but it's through conversations like that with my mom and telling my story like this that it becomes easier and easier to find the door. Kevin Mullen comes to us from paper. So a black guy, two white guys, and a Mexican walk into a bar. <clears throat> The bar is in Tijuana, Mexico. <clears throat> I'm one of the white guys. The other three guys are teammates of mine from my high school football team in Bonita, California. Bonita is in way, way south San Diego, eight miles from downtown Tijuana, about 15 miles from downtown San Diego. By the way, if you grew up in Bonita, you don't call it Tijuana. It's always TJ, as in, what are you doing tonight? Oh, we're going to TJ. Oh, cool. Can I have a ride? All right, let's go. So you're 17 years old, you have a choice to make. You can find a fake ID for $100, go downtown 15, 18 miles away, party with a bunch of 25-year-olds you don't know at $7 a drink, or you go eight miles away and uh, party with a bunch of your friends. I can walk into any bar along Revolution Boulevard and know 20 people. 10 of them from my high school, 10 of them from other high schools. So pretty easy choice to make. I checked the exchange rate yesterday. It's 20 pesos to the dollar. In 1983, it was 200 pesos to the dollar. So five bucks, get you six beers, six Dos Equis in a bucket full of ice, and you're good to go. So I'm in the bar with my friends having a good time in TJ. I'm chatting some, with some people that I know. And there are two rules when you go to Mexico with your buddies. And rule number one is you fight in a square. And rule number two is if one person goes to jail, everybody goes to jail. <clears throat> so I'm chatting with the girls, trying, I'm a lover, not a fighter, so I'm just chatting it up. And I hear Dave's in a fight. Dave's the other white guy. <clears throat> So I make my way across the bar, and he's just wailing on some dude. And I, we fight in the square. I take my position in the square, and I back up to him. And Roy shows up, the other guy, nose guard, the Mexican. And then James shows up, the black guy, and he's got the, the fourth corner on the square. And we're fighting in the bar. And the reason you have to fight in the square is because in Mexico, if you jump on somebody and just start wailing them, trying to finish them off, the Mexican bartenders carry sawed-off baseball bats. And if you're just punching, they'll just walk up behind you and just clock you in the back of the head. And you're lucky if you wake up in an alley with no money. You're not lucky if you don't wake up. So we're doing our thing. We're fighting. We're working our way through the bar. We fight through the bar, up the stairs, past the bouncers. At some point, somebody breaks a beer bottle and jabs Dave in the arm. And he's, he's been stabbed and he's bleeding everywhere. Now, Dave is on this side of me, so every time he comes back to punch, I get sprayed with blood. We're punching, we're fighting, we're moving, we're juking, we're moving out, working our way. We fight our way past the bouncers, we step out onto Revolucion, and two cop cars pull up. So, rule number two, one person goes to jail, everybody goes to jail. They're trying to take Dave to jail, he's bleeding, he must be involved. So. 
we're like, well, if he's going, we're all going. James, who is the only, the black guy, who's the only rational person at this point, is in the front seat of the cop car. And I've never been arrested in the United States, but I imagine they handcuff you and they write your name down. That doesn't happen in Tijuana, Mexico. They pile us all into one car. I'm on one side, Dave's riding bitch in the back seat, and I'm on the bloody side, so he's continuing to bleed on me. Roy's in the other seat, James is coherent and up front. Um, I was, let's just say, I was overserved at Mike's Bar in Tijuana, Mexico. Because the last thing I remember is putting my head against the glass in the police station. And at some point, many hours later, James kicks me in the head and goes, wake up, man, they're letting us go. And I lift my head out of a pool of urine and blood and vomit. None of which are mine, by the way. And we get out of the Tijuana jail. Now, if you want to hear the rest of this story of how I got back across the U.S. border with no money, no ID, covered in blood, you'll have to bail me out of jail. Thank you very much. All right, our last storyteller from our 2015-16 season, Stephen Ritter from Scissors, which was just like a month ago. Caged, huh? My cage story starts about like theirs, the bad decision. Mine's worse than some. Um, so at one point in my life, I didn't really like myself very well, but I really liked drinking. Drinking was fun. I felt good, I felt bouncy, you know, I just felt happy. And one night, I drank a little more than I should have and made a very poor decision. I drove. Um, Long story short, as far as the driving aspect goes, I decided to make a 90-degree turn at about 60 miles an hour, uh, center-punched the signal light, the pole, um, which didn't move much. Um, didn't have a seatbelt on. Should have died. Like, physics says I should have died. Um, thank God no one is in the intersection, so no one else did. Um, had a passenger in the car who also was drunk and who was kind of egging on the situation. Um, we both got pretty banged up. Uh, I went out with concussion, broken rib, and dislocated hip. He had similar injuries. We both uh, were um, uh, predicted to make full recoveries and did. But that got me into, into a bit of a cage. The first one was anxiety. Um, I was charged with aggravated DUI, which is a violent felony that could carry up to 15 years. I didn't even have a speeding ticket on my record at this point, had no experience with the judicial system at all. I was freaking out. Um, just completely nervous wreck. But I got through this thing, you know, pled out, because what else was I gonna do? Um, and, and got my, my sentence to a, a physical cage now. Um, I only got 90 days in Ada County, which is not that bad of a jail. <laughs> it really isn't that bad. Um, low point was about 17 days of the swine flu while I was in there, which was pretty miserable. Um, but outside of that, you know, lack of stimulating conversation, uncomfortable place to sleep, but not that terrible. 
And then we get out of that, right? We get out of that physical cage and we move on to a social, social cage, probation. Six years of probation, four of which supervised, which I don't recommend to anybody if you can avoid it. It's, it's like being a kid again. You, you dumb yourself down, you do all these things to, to try and play the part that you think they want you to play. And I didn't even have that bad of probation. I was a Girl Scout. I'd followed all the rules. I never got in trouble. I didn't do anything. I never drank. Um, that's the silver lining of the story, by the way. I still haven't. It's been seven years. Um, so there's that. But while in this, this social cage, I found a third, even worse cage. I found depression. I'd never had it before. I don't know if it was the brain injury or the guilt or what, but there would be three weeks of my life at a time lost to being inside, to just feeling completely helpless and scared and alone and having the feeling that no one else could possibly understand that life could hurt this much. And I'd never dealt with it before. I had no filter for it. I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, and my life was kind of crappy at that point. <laughs> but since then, it's improved dramatically. Um, I've gotten to a point where I'm fairly happy, the, you know, most of the time. The, the whole depression thing still creeps up every now and again. And, and the thing about it, the weird thing about it, is it comes up without any seemingly warning for the most part. And it's not logical, it's not rational. Um, I can sit here and think about what I need to do, steps A, B, and C, and watch A go by, and B go by, and then by that point, who even cares about C? But <laughs> if you guys want to hear more, you can. <laughs> I'd just as soon be a Debbie Downer and leave it at that. But uh, I, will, um, I will walk off with a poem that I, I wrote. Um, Encaged in a tomb of bone, Ensnared in cords of muscle, caught up in a web of skin, the witness waits within. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Bob Haycock, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Anna Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Elizabeth McKetta, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and the Slammer and the Slam show sponsor, Boise Escape, with podcast production by Stephen Baldessari, featuring live music from The Green Zoo and show photography by Paul Budge. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support the story program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night.